0: Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We are a podcast where we go beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you guys along for another episode today. I'm your co host, Brent Hinson. We have a great guest lined up for today's episode. But before we welcome him in, we first say hello to our host, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, man. How are things been for you? Doing well. I, I've spent the morning watching a lot of videos with today's guest, a very knowledgeable guy, and I'm looking forward to uh, hearing you guys kind of digging deep on some of the topics uh, that he's been talking about.
1: Man, I, I don't know about you, but the last few weeks uh, of our episodes have been just spot on. Very I, I think much They've so. been moving, and, and, and I, I expect today... Uh, to be no different uh, i will go ahead and say it uh, i'm going to let you introduce him but th- this guy right here uh, is is one of my mentors uh, one of the guys that um, when i talk about him in classes i i often describe him as probably the smartest guy in law enforcement and that is not an exaggeration Uh, So what can you tell us about our guest today?
0: Uh, Today's guest was a full time police officer for over 25 years, has over 30 years of law enforcement training experience, is the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award in recognition of his contribution and commitment to officer safety in Canada and also the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal in recognition of his contributions to the law enforcement profession. Currently is the president and CEO of Winning Mind Training based out of Calgary, Alberta, Canada, where he joins us from today. Please say hello and welcome, Mr. Brian Willis. How are you, sir?
2: I'm very well, thanks. Brian, how about yourself?
0: Very well. Thank you so much for taking time to join us today.
2: Well, it's uh, my pleasure. I'm not sure I can live up to the hype from Michael, but uh, we'll do our best.
1: I just have to ask this because uh, how's the weather today in Canada?
2: Well, in this part of Canada, it's actually a little cool today. We've had some pretty warm weather for us, although hot and cold is relative. But this morning when I was out for my walk, it was uh, about 48 degrees. It's up to the low 50s. So um, it's a little cooler today, but that's all right. We've had some hot weather, so everybody's fine with a little cooler.
1: I, I will try not to hold my jealousy against you then because I'm a little bit over the hot humid stuff even here in Michigan and Brent's a native of Michigan Brent it's felt more like Tennessee up here lately than it has Michigan
0: I literally go outside and stand for a minute and I start to sweat so I'm envious of the 50 degree (laughs) temperature.
1: hey Brian I I really appreciate you you being on here and I I will say it now and I will say it probably a bunch more during our our, our time together Uh, but I want to say how much I appreciate not only what you have done for our profession, but all that you have done for me. I I, I mean it when I I say that you're one of the guys I consider uh, my mentor, and and I thank you for investing in me.
2: Well, it's been my pleasure, and it's been uh, fun to see the great things that you're doing and the tremendous contributions that you're making to the profession, so I appreciate those kind words.
1: So, let's get started, and and I'm gonna start off the way that I do with most of our guests uh just because i i think it's interesting finding out how it is that people got into this profession in the first place Uh, as our intro says everybody has a story to tell and that's one of the stories that i found to be most interesting and most varied so how did you come about uh, getting into this profession way back at the very beginning
2: well it's uh Being a law enforcement officer is interesting. I mean, it was something that I always wanted to do as a kid growing up. I don't know why. I mean, I don't come from a law enforcement family. I don't think we ever had any friends that were law enforcement. Now, I took a bit of a a – Detour. Uh, so when I was 16, I made some pretty dumbass decisions that resulted in me being a high school dropout, uh, being homeless, living in the backseat of a 1964 Plymouth for months. Uh, at 18 years of age, I had a grade 10 education. I was about 100 pounds overweight, I was a pack a day smoker, and I was working in a warehouse job that paid me $325 a month. And I realized that there was a couple things that happened that made me realize if I, I needed to make some significant changes in my life or nothing was going to change and I was never going to achieve that dream. So I quit smoking, started working out, uh, went back, finished my high school. Uh, and I at the time I was living in Edmonton, which is about a three-hour drive north of Calgary where I'm living now. And um, so I had applied to the Edmonton Police Service and got turned down. So I reached out to them and said, okay, what do I need to do to become a better applicant because they said come back and apply in a year they said we're not going to tell you so go away and come back in a year so I came back a year later um, doing all the things I thought I was supposed to be doing I was volunteering I was working out um, and they turned me down again uh, this time they told me that I wasn't smart enough to be a cop there because I'd never been to college or university um, now what what kind of surprised me is the the staff sergeant the equivalent of a lieutenant in the recruiting unit he didn't care what you took at college university in fact he didn't care if he graduated the fact that you somehow went to some college or some university and took something for at least one or two years somehow made you smarter Uh, and I didn't understand that so uh, I applied elsewhere Calgary was good enough to hire me and in uh, November 1979 as a pretty naive pretty cocky 22 year old kid I was sitting in recruit training with the Calgary Police Service and I've been in Calgary ever since so Uh,
1: Brent I just have to point something out to you. you you remember back in our episode with Joe Willis no relation And he talked about his early educational experience and their educational experiences are, especially at that level, were very similar. Yet I've described both of them as two of the smartest guys I've ever stinking met. And I, I just find that fascinating.
0: Yeah, I didn't even put that together until you just mentioned that, but that's interesting. I mean, literally two guys that I look
1: up to that I go to for advice that I, that, that I seek guidance from, and, and they started that way. And, and Brian, I'm I'm really going to talk you up here for a second. <laughs> there, there's, there's one other guy that, that, that sounds an awful lot like, and he's also one of my heroes and that's general James Mattis. Because when you go and you read uh, his book call sign chaos, and he talks about how he was as a young man. Truth be told, he probably wouldn't be hired in most police agencies in America if he applied. And that's just another rabbit hole. But
0: but there's something to be said for life experiences over, you know, being in school training as well.
1: Well, Brian, would you, would you agree with me that it, there's a lot to be said for uh, just because this is where I am now doesn't mean I have to stay
2: here. Absolutely, and I think that's a key thing for everybody. Whether it's in the early part of your life or at different stages in your career, it's easy to get stuck there. Um, but again, when we focus on what we control and control a controllable, we realize we have a lot of control over that. And education comes in a lot of forms. Formal education is just one piece of it, uh, but I think we sometimes don't give enough uh, credit to life experience, to work experience, to uh, some of those stumbles and the hurdles along the road but yeah we're never stuck at where we're at uh we always have the opportunity and there's there's just so many stories out there in the world that absolutely prove that
1: let's dork out for just a second if we could uh because one of the things that you're a big proponent of and we'll we'll get into the training part uh, coming up here uh, shortly but what we often forget is that in the average male the prefrontal cortex part of the brain, the part that makes smart decisions or is supposed to make smart decision, isn't usually fully developed until age 25. And perhaps that's something that we as a profession need to remember when we go and we interview somebody who has made some decisions before that brain was fully developed that that you sit there and go, well, why did they do that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think we need to look at, there's a whole bunch of things, but we all fall into that uh, victim thinking, the blame game, all of those things at different parts of our life, sometimes early in our life. But, you know, I think it's not, it's a matter of what have people done to recognize where the path they're going down is not a good path and what have they done to change that path. Uh, so I think uh, sometimes we're looking for the smooth path. Somebody that uh, finished high school and then went into, you know, University and then maybe did something else and then they're coming to us. And there certainly can be value in that. Um, but there's a lot of learning that takes place on the other path as well.
1: It's funny you should say it like that. I actually saw a quote from uh, Dr. Eric Thomas uh, just today, who, who's also another person I love uh, listening to. This quote was, don't pray for easy, pray for strength. The easy you don't learn a whole lot and and i love that concept right there and 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 it's not just on the police side it's just on the human side the the hard part often is when we're younger because of that lack of full development of the brain
2: yeah and it's uh, i mean one of the things as you know one of the the questions that i push a lot is the question what's important now uh which I borrowed from Lou Holtz, but uh, there's some sub-elements to that, and and two things that I talk about is we need to embrace the struggle, we need to embrace the suck, we need to look for the learning, we need to look for the good, and we need to dare to be great, and so when we look at that, I mean, struggle's part of life, struggle's part of learning, Um, and the reality is when you listen to neuroscientists, Andrew Huberman and others, um, they talk about the fact that if there is no struggle, if there is no friction, there is no learning, um, and that's why you know when you look at the desirable difficulties concept from Robert and Elizabeth Bjork at UCLA, that desirable difficulties that struggle is critical for us to learn. And so I think what we need to do is we need to recognize that the struggle is part of life. Uh, the suck is part of life. There's all kinds of things that happen to us personally and professionally that suck. So we can either embrace the struggle and realize that it's part of life and we can embrace the suck or we can let the suck embrace us and we can just give up when the struggle happens. So I think we need to realize that there's a lot, that a lot of growth that takes place. There's potential for a lot of growth that takes place in the friction, and in the suck, and in those struggles. We just need to help people look for the good and look for the learning in those opportunities.
1: Eric Greitens uh, is a former Navy SEAL that wrote the book, uh, Resilience. And and one of the things that stuck with me most from that book was when he said, too many people are looking for the stress-free life, and it doesn't exist. What we should be looking for, what we should be striving for is the ability to handle the stress appropriately and and i i think and and you can disagree with me but i think that that perhaps is a skill that is lacking uh, in many people today
2: Absolutely. And I think that's what we need to realize that and you know, Dr. Stephanie Kahn talks about the fact that resilience is not a state or a trait that you're born with. It's a skill and it can be developed, but it needs to be continually worked on. It's like your fitness. And I love that book by Gritens, and and I use his definition of resilience that he talks about resilience is not about bouncing back because you can never go back. It's about moving through. It's about moving through hardship to happiness, from strength, suffering to strength, from pain to wisdom. And he said that the most resilient people are people that find healthy ways to incorporate uh, those struggles and those issues uh, into their life. And so I think that's a key part of it. So you're absolutely right. It's about this is a skill or a trait that we need to develop. And we have this, sometimes we have this mentality uh, that people either have it or they don't don't. And that's a fallacy because uh, it's like every other skill, it can be developed, but it needs to be trained and taught and continually built.
1: Well, and so that leads me to another question for you. Are we, and when I say we, I'm talking about society as a whole, are we perhaps protecting our kids, our young folks too much from the suck and so there truly is no development of that resiliency. There's been no work on resiliency when these folks are coming into the profession and it's causing problems for our people once they get into the profession.
2: Well, I think there's two things. I think there's there's that element of uh, overprotectiveness where we're not allowing our kids or people as, uh, as a whole to experience the struggle, to have them understand that the struggle is part of life and part of growth, that it's part of that growth mindset and places, schools that are teaching about kids early about the growth mindset – that it's about effort and process and that it's about the s- embracing the struggle or having a lot of success. But I think we also see the other. Um, you know, we see, I think one of the reasons that we've gone to this giving kids trophies for participating and medals for showing up uh, is because of all the uh, asshole parents that get that are involved in coaching youth sports that are on the other end of that spectrum where they think that uh, being some kind of... Uh, Uh, drill sergeant not understanding the art and science of a drill sergeant and punishing people and screaming and yelling at them to teach them toughness thinks that um, that's what it's about Um, well I would encourage people to just read just the first chapter now obviously the whole book is going to be tremendous value but read the first chapter of Do Hard Things by Steve Magnus and he's working to debunk this whole myth of toughness so I think we see the two ends of the spectrum and we're very much a pendulum society that is all or nothing and we need to realize that uh there's there's a place in the middle uh that f- that allows for growth
1: law enforcement should be reflective of the society that we we serve and protect and, and i think that we become a, a pendulum uh profession too we've got some folks up here that have never been forced to deal with the, the rough side of things and then we've got other folks on the other end that that they have this mentality that that You know, I have to have a heart of stone. You know, I have to have to be a rock. And again, there has to be a place in the middle.
2: And I agree with that. And I think, that again, we have this this false uh, in some elements of law enforcement. We have this false belief about toughness. And we see people running these stress academies or boot camp academies uh, to trying to see who has what it takes, whatever the heck that is. Um, and they're just taking this whole uh, element of stress inoculation and flipping on its head and driving a whole bunch of people out that would be – potentially could be great in our profession. I think the other piece that we're missing is – I think kids in today's world are exposed to way more violence than we were in in my age. My two sons, now my oldest son is 38, my youngest son is 36, but they were exposed to way more violence in their school setting and those environments uh, in their lifetime than I was in mine. Um, and so I think you know the the world has evolved, and we say, well, these kids are soft because they've never had to experience. Or go well, they've been exposed to a lot of trauma. They've been exposed to a lot of things, and uh, I th- I don't think we give them enough credit for that. Um, And I think we make general statements about millions of people um, based on the years they were born, and I wish we would stop doing that Um, because my two sons are both very successful entrepreneurs, uh, but they're both millennials, and it drives me crazy when I hear people trashing millennials. And so, we need to be very cautious about putting people in a box based on the year that they were born because everybody's experience in that, of that same birthday is gonna be drastically different.
1: Absolutely, and so I wanna ask you about young Officer Willis. What were some of the struggles that you faced as a young officer? What what were some of the challenges that you faced that you you came into this profession? Boy, that's not what I thought it was going to be.
2: Well, and I think it's like everybody else. I'm not sure that we know what the profession is going to be like. So when I was in the recruit academy, uh, they give you a course you put in which district. So I come from an agency that's now about 2,300 sworn officers. So we have uh, eight patrol districts. At the time I was in the academy, I think we had six or seven. Um, but, so they asked you where you want to go. So I said, well, I want to go downtown. Now, they hadn't allowed recruits to go to the downtown district for six or seven years because uh, they figured it probably wasn't a good place for you to learn how to go be a well-rounded cop. Um, but they were short staffed so they there was five or six of us that were allowed to go downtown and I was assigned to the patrol area right at the east end of downtown and whatever people when you hear of east ends of downtown that's what it was like now I mean right before I graduated there was a new sergeant came into the Academy and he was responsible for that patrol area and he called me into his office and I would never met him before and he said, I understand you're going down to Echo One, Willis. I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, well, here's a piece of advice. He said, go get a picture taken of you with all your teeth in uh, because that may be the last sign somebody ever sees you with all your teeth again. Um, so that, that should go
1: on a recruiting poster somewhere.
2: <laughs> yeah, that kind of gave me a sense <laughs> as to, to what I was going into. Now, I mean, for me, one of the, the challenges uh, was my first FTO – um, hated recruits, and he hated me because he had to give up his good partner to work with me. So, I mean, our first, we worked revolving shifts. So our first shift was a late car night shift. So in every patrol district, you had one car that started a half an hour later than everybody else, went home half an hour later than everybody else. Uh, worst shift in the world. But uh, So we were working that that shift, and we drove around the first week, and he wouldn't talk to me unless he absolutely had to. And then on week two, we're walking to beat, uh, 1800 start time walking to beat in the East End, walking from bar to bar to bar, and these are like skid row bars, and uh, you know, you go to these all night cafes where there's cockroaches crawling across the counters, and. Um, And we'd go to some domestic with some hooker having a domestic with her pimp. uh, And we'd go up there and he'd just stand there with his arms crossed and say, well, rookie, let's see how you freaking handle this. And then he'd just stand (laughs) there and let me flounder. And then he'd tell everybody else at coffee what an idiot I was. Uh, so my, my saving grace with him and he was, he and I got to be good friends after a while, but my saving grace is, uh, we had an intramural hockey league with our agency and there was every t- district had uh, a hockey team and I wasn't a great hockey player, but I played hockey. So I started playing hockey and he was a hockey player. So that elevated my status. And all of a sudden Willis was okay. But, uh, I guess the big challenge was just, uh, getting used to figuring out how to deal with the wide variety of people. The commander of that district, before I started, he called me in. He said, look, here's a deal. He said, "Uh, we have some of the highest paid CEOs uh, in our country that work in some of these office towers in downtown Calgary. And he said, we have a lot of headquarters for big business here. And he said, "Uh, but as night time comes, the dynamics of downtowns change drastically. And you're going to encounter a lot of assholes after dark. And he said, you're going to encounter a wide range of people. Do not confuse the groups. You need to be able to treat people with respect and treat them accordingly but just be cautious because the people that you're going to deal with on day shift are drastically different than the people that you're going to deal with uh, when the sun goes down downtown. So uh, it was just a you know it was a, a lot of overwhelm for I guess every new officer. But I guess probably my biggest struggle with the first month and a half was just uh, trying to break through that barrier with my FTO uh, so that he would. Um, be a teacher rather than somebody that was just there to see me fail.
0: Well, and I have to ask a question here because I've encountered those types of people just in my civilian life where they wanted me to learn the hard way. And I think I did learn from those experiences. I would have rather been a bit more, uh, a softer approach, but you do learn something from that in some way. Do you not?
2: You do. I just, I think that what We don't learn as much as we could uh, as effectively as we could.
0: Effectively is the key word, I imagine.
2: Yeah. So when you're not getting feedback, when you're not getting direction, when you're thrown in, it's going to sink or swim, you know, you're going to learn, but I'm not sure that that's the most effective way to learn. Uh, That's why I think that, you know, one of our challenges is we leave the T out of FTOs. We don't teach FTOs how to be teachers, how to be trainers. A lot of them, the T stands for tick box. And I think that's a critical piece is that the academy is a sterile environment. The role of the field training officer should be to coach, to teach, to mentor, to help this young officer, to help him or her figure out how to apply the learning from the academy in this now real-world environment and how to do that effectively. But that sink or swim mentality, that's not an effective coaching strategy. You're going to learn, you just may not learn the right lessons and you may not learn them uh, as effectively as you can. And the danger that you might learn too is that, hey, once I'm in a position of authority and power, I can treat people the same way. Uh, For me, it was once I'm in a position of power and authority, I don't want to treat people this way because I don't like being treated this way. So I think we can learn, but we may learn the wrong lessons. Stay
0: connected to the Between the Lines podcast by visiting our website at BetweenTheLinesWithVirtualAcademy.com. You can listen to all available episodes, get detailed information about guests, and find links to all of our social media accounts, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You'll also find links to where you can hear episodes episodes using popular podcast providers like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. New episodes available every Tuesday morning at between the lines with virtualacademy dot com.
1: What combination of things was it that that led you from where you were at to saying, you know what? I think I'd like to get in on this training side of thing, this training part. It's really appealing to me.
2: Well, I realized pretty early on and through some incidents working in that downtown, especially with my first FTO, that maybe some of the training didn't really prepare us, that we had been, you know, when we did building clearing, we always got shot up and ambushed and uh, died in those events. And that wasn't an effective lesson to take out to the street. But as I went through my career, I was frustrated with some of the training that we were doing. So we changed, uh, you know, in the... 80s, we changed the control tactics program in our agency, and they went to uh, the Koga system. Now they brought in Bob Koga. Now they didn't even, they wouldn't even bring in Bob Koga for his full program. His full instructor certification program was 320 hours. They brought him in for 160 hours so they took a group of uh, people that were going to be the trainers and they spent a solid month all day every day with bob koga and they were super good at the koga system and then the rest of us got eight hours and that was it and uh, we were overwhelmed and then you just couldn't remember any of those things and then some of the i had an incident about five years into my career i'd gone to a new patrol district Again, it was a super busy district, and and I had a dealing with a guy on PCP at 8.30 on a Saturday morning, beautiful summer, sunny day, that he was sitting bare ass naked on the sidewalk, and we got into uh, an altercation where he was trying to take my car, and then he got out and was coming at me, and we had the 26-inch hickory batons at the time. I mean, I ended up hitting this guy probably 25 times as hard as I could hit him. Uh, with that baton. And and at that system we were using, we were targeting joints. So uh, my third strike hit him on the side of the knee, and when I hit him on the side of the knee, I thought I broke my stick, my baton. You know that sound when you break a dry piece of wood? That's the sound it made. Oh, yeah. That's the sound it made when I hit him. And he just looked at me, and this was – I had hit him just above the elbow as hard as I could hit him with a two-handed swing and had speared that into him uh, in the center of his torso as, as hard as I could. And his only response to that is he looked at me after those three hits and said, well, that didn't hurt. And then he said, "Okay, well, I'll get in the back seat." So he went and climbed in the back seat of the car, and then tried to break the shotgun out of the rack. And um, so we were in this this monumental fight. Um, but what they never told us is that uh, you know what, these techniques might not work on the street to do what we're telling you they're going to do in training. So
1: That might be helpful to know.
2: Well, and you know what? My opinion was, I had people say, well, you know, the stick stuff that they teach us doesn't work. And my philosophy was, you know what? It worked in that it kept him off of me. If he would have got his hands on me and if he would have gone for my handgun, he could have ripped that holster wide open because of the crappy holsters we were using at the time. So there was a series of events and then we changed control tactic systems again. And uh, the people that were they were doing that we were showing up it was supposed to be eight hours of training and we'd be out of there after four hours and it was a waste of our time and I was very frustrated by a bunch of that and after prior to getting promoted i had had the good fortune of getting seconded into our tactical section so we have a full time tactical team we hosted the Winter Olympics in 1988 so they had to add two additional teams to be able to cover everything for the Olympics. So they seconded 12 officers in, and I was one of those 12. We went through 600 hours of training, uh, consecutive training. Then we deployed during, and it was some great training, and we deployed during the Olympics and a little bit afterwards. And then six out of the 12 of us got to stay, and six out of the 12 got sent back to the street. I was told that I was going to stay, and then the lieutenant, or the staff sergeant called me and said, you're out, you're going back to your patrol district. So that was fine. I went back. I got uh, ended up getting promoted a year later, and I started doing some training uh, on uh, containment and on building clearing uh, after I'd got promoted. And then in 1992 and 1993, we had officers murdered in line of duty in back-to-back years. And our agency recognized that uh, we were not doing a very effective job of providing ongoing officer safety training for our patrol people, our operational people. So, they formed a committee. The committee put together an 80 or a 40-hour officer safety course. And I got in on the ground level of that and started teaching. And the element that I took because nobody else wanted it was the mental preparation piece. And so, I started teaching that. Now, Prior to that, uh, after I'd come out of the tactical support section, I was a patrol sergeant and then I ended up suffering a pretty significant knee injury that required reconstructive surgery so I got moved into an administrative sergeant position. Because I was frustrated with some of the things we were doing in training, I wanted to build my portfolio, I guess, or whatever to get into training. So I took a certificate in adult uh, education through the University of Calgary, completed that, got involved in this other in-service training. Eventually, I was able to move into our training section. First, I was teaching some of the uh, leadership and some of the effective presentation stuff. Then I was able to take over the control tactics program through a lot of maneuvering and work so we could make some significant changes there. And then there was a sergeant that left one of the units that was responsible for the officer safety and incident command training and driver training. And I was able to move into there, bring the control tactics with us. And then I was just really fortunate to be have a group of people that I got to work with every day that loved coming to work, that love teaching, love training, and loved learning, uh, and were willing to challenge each other and say, what can we do better? So it was kind of a roundabout journey through a lot of different things, but I got into training for the same reason I used to coach my kids' sports, because I wanted to have an impact or an influence on how it was delivered, because I wasn't happy about what I was seeing. So that's how I got in, and then it just became, for me, that became my true passion in the profession.
1: Brent, when we listen to that story that he just told right there, uh, it takes me back to an episode a couple weeks ago, where we talked to... uh, Justin Witt, Sergeant from Louisville Metro. And he talked about his experiences with FTO and and he talked about how uh, after he got off FTO, there there was a significant event and they knew they hadn't prepared him properly. So they had to say, be careful. Right. Because, and and it's the exact same thing that you were talking about with the, with your first FTO. And then also with the baton, you know, they they hadn't prepared me for this right here. And that that concerns me because you're talking the eighties. And Justin was talking about the 2000s and it's concerning to me that we have identified these problems in our profession and there are people trying to to address them you're you're one of those people but as an industry as a whole we still seem to be doing things the way we've always done them and expecting different results,
2: and not only are we expecting different results, but we're we're blaming the officers uh, when they're failing to live up to some unreal. St- realistic expectations. And I agree with you is that, and I think there's a, a multitude of reasons, but I think part of it is we, uh, a lot of trainers don't know what they don't know. Uh, they're not like yourself. They're not going out. They're not going to conferences. They're not reading. They're not listening to podcasts. They're not trying to figure out what is it that I don't know, and then diving into that and then figuring out how do I apply this and what do we do to improve what it is that we're doing. But we still keep doing these things, there's blocked and siloed training, running these stress academies, uh, doing all these things, doing this one-off training where we do block training from an in-service perspective. And people might have to do that in-service training once every uh, 12 months. But if it's once a year that I have to do that training, then theoretically, I can go 24 months between trainings because I could do it at the start of this year and the end of next year, and it's 24 months between training. And we have this belief that uh, somehow because I did this training a year ago or two years ago or five years ago, that I'm proficient at it. We have this knee-jerk reaction where we put everybody through this tick-the-box training and then we inappropriately come out and say everybody has been trained in, fill in the blank, when what we should be saying is everybody has attended training in. There's a big difference between having attended training and being trained in. We have this expectation of military special operations performance from our people uh, when we're not even doing a good job with basic training. And what we're missing the boat is we've glamorized and and I have huge, huge respect for people in the military and especially people in the special operations community. But, you know, when I talked to a guy who spent 28 years in the SEAL teams, uh, what what Tony explained to me is he said, you know what, BUDS training, which everybody associates with the SEALs, is the first 24 or 26 weeks of a a two-and-a-half-year process. So before going to BUDS, you've been through basic training or four years at Annapolis in some cases, and then you go through two-and-a-half years of training before you deploy with a specific team. And then what he said is he said, you know what, we do six to nine months deployments and then we come back for 18-month training iteration and then we do a six to nine-month deployment and we come back for an 18-month training iteration. Uh, If you look at professional athletes, they practice 90 or 95% of the time and perform 2% of the time or 5% of the time. And you know what, we'd be awesome if, if we only had to perform three hours once a week. Uh, 16 to 20 weeks out of the year, and the rest of the time we got to train, we'd be awesome. If we did two and a half years of nonstop training before we went out in the field and then worked the street for six to nine months and then went back to 18 months of training and did that over and over throughout our careers, we'd be awesome. But we can't expect that level of performance with the level of training that we're giving people. So we need to think differently about how we're doing this.
1: I love what you said there. And Brent, uh, he has um, scolded me on occasion for because I have the bad habit of saying, you know what we need to do? We need to think outside the box. And it's like Brian's like, Mike, listen, man, we work in a boxed world. <laughs> what we need to do is be creative in the box. And the reason why as a profession, we're not in a lot of times is, is number one, uh, we have well-intentioned instructors that simply don't know that there's a better way of doing it and number 2 we also have instructors that aren't willing to do it because it requires more work it's harder for the instructor to train appropriately and, and i think if we if we really want to be considered a profession and, and be considered professionals then we have to act like professionals as instructors
2: absolutely and we need to change that that are the way that we think about this. From, you know, We tend to preload training. You know, We want people to have uh, a degree or something before we get hired, and, and I'm not a fan of that philosophy. Uh, but then we do the basic training. According to the research by 4Science, there's two-thirds of recruits graduating from academies in the U.S. today that do not go to formal FTO programs. Uh, So there's a lot of people that are not going to formal FTO programs. The FTO training varies drastically. FTO selection varies drastically. But then we have this model where we do training once a year. Uh, So what we need to think about is every day being a training day and uh, grow the tribe of trainers. Teach our frontline supervisors how to do 10-minute roll call training around decision training. And that's part of what we need to teach. We need to understand that decision-making is a skill. Critical thinking is a skill. Problem solving is a skill. And like resilience, we need to teach those skills early and train them throughout people's careers. But what are we doing every day? Just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. And that becomes the key, right? If we could train 10 minutes a day, four days a week, 48 weeks out of the year, that's 32 hours of additional training a year. Now, here's the real benefit to that 10 minutes. So, you're the patrol sergeant. You spend 10 minutes with your squad at the starter shift doing a decision training exercise, talking about if this happened, what could we do? And could is a better word than would because could opens it up to a whole world of possibilities. And we talk about it for 10 minutes, but we don't close the loop. Then after 10 minutes, we say, okay, so let's get out and let's get to work and we'll carry on this conversation tomorrow. Now, what your people are going to do when they go out in the street is they're going to think about it. They're going to talk about it. They're going to talk about it over coffee and they're going to get an additional 60 to 120 minutes of learning. Through, they're going to go look policy up. They're going to go look up legal issues. They're going to do research and they're going to talk about this. And then we'll do the same thing the next day and the next day and the next day. And now they're fluent on what the policy is and what the procedures are. And now they know how to make decisions in new and novel situations because they deal with novelty at every single call. The calls are coded the same. It might even be the same address, but every call is different. And they're dealing with new and novel situations all the time. And we're trying to give them canned answers to a single thing. But when they show up and this is different from what we did in training and they don't know how to respond, then we blame them. And instead, we need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what piece of this do we own?
1: Absolutely. And I have to give a shout out here uh, to our sponsor, Virtual Academy, Uh, because one of the most attractive parts of that platform to me is that ability to have that every day is a training day, to have it systematically done at an agency level. I mean, because not only is it training that's done on a daily basis, but it can also prep my people for when we do have that face-to-face time, and then afterwards it can be used to reinforce what was taught during, that face-to-face time make it stick i I know you're a big fan uh, of that book right there Uh, i think that's something that should be read by every single trainer but not only every single trainer but every single administrator because they're the ones that have to give approval for these things And, and if i i gotta give one more shout out here uh the director of public safety chief john robinson in Alpharetta Georgia a very forward-thinking very smart guy and he has pledged that his people are going to train 20% of the time and he goes listen I recognize it this is a journey we have to get to it's not something I can just flip a switch and get there but he is committed to his people training 20% of the time because as you said Brian what well, we can't provide entry-level training and expect SEAL team results it just isn't going to happen
2: Absolutely. And as you say, I mean, Virtual Academy has been a leader in this field for a long time and done some tremendous work. And when we can tap into a resource like that, but then tap into the wealth of talent that we have in our agency. Uh, And like I say, not just our frontline supervisors, but, you know, let's go to our investigators and let's have our investigators make a 10-minute video on, here's some things to consider as a first uh, responder, first officer out of the scene of a robbery, first officer out of the scene of a sexual assault, first officer out of the scene of uh, a homicide. Uh, first off, I'll, I'll start out the scene of a, an armed robbery. We can make a series of those. Then we have somebody do a series on uh, key elements from from report writing for different types of events. And then we tap into our uh, crisis intervention people and they make a series of 10-minute videos on here's some communication strategies for dealing with people in highly emotionally charged situations. And then we uh, look at our people that are former division one athletes or professional athletes and we talk to them and do a series of videos with them about here's some mental preparation strategies I used as an athlete and here's how I use this now as a law enforcement officer. Here's how I apply the skill of imagery. Here's how I apply this skill. Here's how I apply this skill and do a series of those. We have tremendous wealth of knowledge within our organizations that we just don't tap into. So I think we need to expand this so that training becomes an agency-wide responsibility. And ideally, we have a great leader like John. Uh, and, uh, you know, the... the the good thing with the great thing with John uh, and people like Frank Trammer in uh, Stockbridge, Georgia, is that they are also trainers. So John Robinson is is out actively training but John is also, uh, when he's at a presentation, so uh, I saw him last week. Uh, he attended the first part of my presentation at the Georgia Association of Chiefs of Police. One of the a handful of people that sits near the front of the room shows up with a notebook and is actually taking notes and is there to learn. So, you know, I, in an ideal world, we have that, but we don't often live in an ideal world. So let's focus on what we control and let's control the controllable. But let's start uh, making this an agency-wide, a cultural piece where we're going to train people throughout people's careers, not just our frontline people, but regardless of where you're at, do something on a regular basis around leadership and other elements. And there's so much that we can tap into it and learn from each other.
1: Absolutely. And I'm going to tell a quick story here about you to show how an impact you had on me because not only do we need to create a culture of sharing and tapping into the wealth of knowledge in our organizations but I think we also need to cultivate a culture where our people are continually learning there's no time where we we reach we reach the pinnacle and so I was teaching a few years ago up in Milwaukee at the NTOA conference and I remember taught all day and at the end of the day I had break everything down but you know what though I did it quick because I wanted to get down to Illinois because the next day at Force Science there was a class I wanted to go to and the the class was fantastic uh Dr. Anthony Penazzotto had done some of the officer safety studies uh that really started making an assessment of these things but but probably what made the biggest impression on me was that when class started who was sitting in front of me oh that's right that was you you were sitting in front of me, uh, own time, own dime, even at this stage of your career, and and I'm I'm by no means an expert, but me calling you the the smartest guys I've ever met in law enforcement, yet you were there trying to learn. And, And I cannot tell you the impact that that had on me, because if you're there doing it, and I think that you're up here, then that just means there's more effort that I need to put into it. And I think that's a culture we really need to drive home in our organizations.
2: Absolutely. And and like you said, that's, and that key is culture. And I know you do a lot of work around culture, but I think we need to be intentional and deliberate about building the right culture and that culture of learning in, in a multitude of ways. Uh, Chris Shung is a great chief of police, chief police of Mountain View, California, uh, just a tremendous leader. But Chris posted something um, just the other day on LinkedIn where he started a book club. And uh, he wasn't sure if anybody was going to join, but they do some great things in Mountain View from a lot of different perspectives, uh, building community trust, developing their people. But he's got 20 people from his agency that are part of this book club. And the rules are no ranks, uh, first name basis for everybody. Uh, Everybody has equal skill, equal uh, input here. And let's learn together. And so the first book that they're working through is The Infinite Game, which I think you and I are both big fans of by Simon Sinek. But again, that's, that's an example of just one of the many things that people can do in an organization to create this culture. But I know other places. So, Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department, a number of years ago, uh, there was one of their officers who was also on the faculty for uh, their leadership academy that started a leadership book club. And so it wasn't a chief of police. It was an officer who said, hey, uh, I think this would be a cool thing to do and start of it. And so those things can grow. And the more of these things that we do, the more we create that culture around learning. Uh, We're learning as part of this. And as a profession, we're continually growing.
1: Since we're talking about books right now, let me ask you this question. If, If a parent came to you And they said, hey, uh, my daughter is starting the police academy. She is starting her law enforcement career right now. And I want to get her a book that is going to help her along in her career. What book would you recommend for that parent to give their child at the very beginning of their law enforcement career?
2: Um, I would probably recommend that they give them Make It Stick. Uh, Peter Brown, as you know, is a lead author. Uh, Rudiger and McDaniels are the co-authors. Rudiger and McDaniels are both PhDs, two of the leading experts in the world in the field of human memory. Uh, Peter Brown is Rudiger's brother-in-law. He's a writer by trade. So he took all of the research and, and put it together in a very r- readable format. And you brought the book up earlier. If I was an academy director, I would, buy a a copy of Make It Stick for every one of the trainers. They would have to read it. We'd be having ongoing conversations about it. And then I would buy a copy of How We Learn uh, by Benedict Carey uh, for everybody coming into the Academy and get them to read it and at least read these salient pieces. A lot of similar information. And the reason why I say uh, How We Learn for people coming into the Academy is because it's uh, cheaper to buy it than it is to buy a Make It Stick. But I would have them read Make It Stick. And then I I would encourage them to have them read uh, Mindset, The New Psychology of Success by Carol Dweck um, and make sure that they develop that growth mindset so that it's not just about getting through the academy. It's about having this growth mindset throughout their career to continue to learn, to continue to grow. And through the, the both of those, I think they would understand that the friction is part of learning. The struggle is good for us and it's natural. And we're all going to struggle. We're going to struggle in the academy of different things. We're going to struggle on field training. We're going to struggle throughout our careers. We're going to struggle when we're a new detective. We're going to struggle when we're a new supervisor. We're going to struggle when we're a new lieutenant, a new captain. Struggle is part of life. So that's where I would have them start.
1: If you're not struggling at those phases that you talked about there, you're either A, not trying at all, or B, you don't care at all. And both of those are dangerous.
2: They are, yeah.
1: yeah. We're going to start wrapping things up here, but I want to ask you a question because you and I will often trade book ideas back and forth. So what have you got for me?
2: Uh, what I would recommend the book right now at the top of my recommended reading list would be Do Hard Things by Steve Magnus, uh, where he's having us reevaluate. The whole understanding of uh, toughness of what toughness means, and that we've got this false image that we see. And uh, when I read his book, uh, I mean it's everything is is highlighted. Is so it's a problem because it's <laughs> he's right on the money with so many of these things. And I'm seeing these same issues uh, within the profession as well. Uh, a couple of other books that I'm working through right now: uh, Future Tense, uh, which is about us reframing how we look. anxiety, that anxiety doesn't have to be a bad thing. Um, So the way that the author defines it is fear is in the moment, but anxiety is in the future and we are anxious about things that are important to us. So we can view anxiety as something that's going to be overwhelming for us and shut us down and and go into that avoidance mindset. Or I can look at this and say, well, I'm anxious about this presentation I have to do uh, at this conference in a couple of weeks. The reason I'm anxious is because it's important for me to do a good job. So I need to make sure that I do the work, put in the preparation time, so that when I show up there, I can do a great job. And realize that when I show up, there's still going to be some of those butterflies. But again, I can reframe some of that. And then... Um... There's one other book that I'm reading right now as well called Peak Mind by Amishi Jaw, who looks at this whole area of the mental preparation uh, and some of those strategies for us. Uh, So those would be a few. Those are ones that that have really hit uh, hit for me uh, of the ones in the most recent things.
1: So if somebody wanted to learn more about the mindset that you were talking about. Cause I know you do training in that area or, or they just wanted to hear more uh, from you what are some ways that people could do that? Where, where, where do I send them?
2: Well, I guess there's two things. Uh, my main website is winningmindtraining.com. So the company is Winning Mind Training. There's content in there. There's some links to a couple of videos, one from a TEDx talk, one from a WinX talk, and one from a, a presentation I did at a, at a leadership conference. There's a weekly blog that's focused on training to try and get us to think differently about training. And then the other uh, thing, if people are willing to, to invest, is I have a membership site called the Excellence and Training Academy. So if they go to excellenceandtrainingacademy.com excellenceintrainingacademy.com. It's a membership site, so there's you need to pay, but we pay more attention to what we pay for. As things that we sign up for for free, we tend to sign up and then never dive into it. And there's new content added every week where currently there's 362 hour-long interviews with researchers, authors, uh, people like Peter Brown, the lead author of Make It Stick, uh, researchers into all different fields, trainers, experienced officers, uh, psychologists. There's also 23 webinars on there that they can access. Uh, so there's there's over 400 hours of, of content in there. And the investment for an individual works out. If you get an individual membership, it's about a dollar a day. But if you sign up for a training uh, unit membership, you can share the sign-in information with the trainers in your academy or your agency as a whole. And then I know some agencies that use some of those webinars and some of the interviews as part of the onboarding process for new instructors. Uh, But there's a a lot of information there. So, those would be the two, I guess, that I would recommend.
1: Very good. Well, I want to say thank you again for your investment in this profession, your investment in me. Uh, We didn't get a chance to talk about it a lot, but the whole win what's important now uh, in my opinion is an industry changing concept i know that uh, below 100 has adopted it and it's a bunch of different training programs uh fantastic stuff but thank you for what you've done thank you for your service thank you for your continued service uh we really appreciate you being here today
2: that's my pleasure and i appreciate the opportunity to uh have a conversation with you guys so
0: brent uh it didn't disappoint buddy yeah and and much like all the other episodes All the things that you guys mentioned, the books, the links, We'll put all that in the show notes so if uh, folks are listening they're curious and they want to find out more we'll have all the information about uh, Brian right there on our show page you guys can find that at uh, between the lines with virtualacademy.com and if you have a story you'd like to share you can contact us there's an email address that you can uh, fill out and get all your information to us again it's at between the lines with virtualacademy.com we we thank you so much for uh taking time to to talk with us today Brian it was a uh, great to have you on
2: it's truly my pleasure I appreciate the opportunity you. <laughs>